And let's return to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 this morning. In John chapter 12, we have reached the bitter end of Jesus' public ministry. After completing John chapter 12, we still have another nine chapters in John's gospel. However, beginning with chapter 13, Jesus has less than 24 hours to live. All four Gospels give us a disproportionately large amount of information concerning Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. But John gives us a huge amount of information concerning Jesus' final night in Jerusalem. John actually tells us very little about the final week, but a great deal about the final night. In chapter 12, John told us of the anointing of Jesus, which actually happened the Saturday before the final week began. He then gave us an abbreviated account of the triumphal entry. He told us of certain Greeks that came to see Jesus. And then John told us of Jesus' discourse on the Son of Man being lifted up in his final hour, the hour of his glory. And today, we will discover the Jews' final reaction to Jesus' teaching. Then in chapter 13, Jesus will be in the upper room, preparing for his crucifixion. And John will devote an astonishing five chapters to the final night in the upper room, chapters 13 through 17. So with that orientation in place, let's take up our reading in the middle of verse 36. The text says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes And understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Is that a challenging passage? Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, 
But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So why is it that many failed to believe Jesus? Here we are at the end of his public ministry, and people have failed to believe on him. Verse 37 implies that people were obligated to believe on Jesus because of his signs. John records seven distinct miracles that Jesus performed, climaxing with the resurrection of Lazarus. The synoptics, of course, record many, many additional miracles. Nevertheless, verse 37 sounds a note of incredulity. They still did not believe in him. Verse 37 strikes a note of human responsibility. The people are guilty for not believing. However, verses 38 through 40 seem to move in a different direction. They read as if the people's disbelief was not only predicted in the Old Testament, but also necessitated by those very predictions. Quoting Isaiah in verse 38, John references a prediction that Isaiah made concerning people not believing. Lord, who has believed? And verse 39 goes even farther. Look at the therefore. Therefore sounds like Isaiah's prediction necessitated disbelief. Therefore, they could not believe. Why not? Because of the prediction. Further, in verse 40, John quotes another Isaiah passage which speaks of God blinding eyes and hardening hearts. So that sounds like their disbelief was due to God's sovereignty. Friends, does God blind people's eyes to the truth? Does God harden people's heart to the truth? Verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. What are you going to do with that? So, do we find the passage a bit perplexing? Human responsibility, verse 37. Divine sovereignty, verses 38 through 40. And if we're not perplexed by the strong language of verse 40, we'll notice the word that is repeated three times in verses 44, 45, and 46. And what's the word? Whoever. Verse 44, whoever believes in me. Verse 45, whoever sees me. Verse 46, whoever believes in me. The term whoever shows up 32 times in John's Gospel. And in a majority of those occurrences, it refers to an open-ended invitation to anyone, whoever, whoever you are, come to Jesus. For instance, John 3 and verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Or John eleven twenty five, 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So friends, do you ever feel like you're just pulled in two different directions simultaneously, even by the same text? Humans are responsible to believe, and God hardens their hearts so they cannot believe. 
Is that what it's saying? So this is really, really dense theologically, and it's going to take us two weeks to work through this passage. But I hope that you're not afraid of just diving in and figuring out what this passage is all about. And this is actually not the first time in John's Gospel that we have encountered this kind of language. This is not the first time we've been forced to contemplate the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. Nor is it the last time that we will encounter this in the New Testament. So let's just do our best with it today. All right? And let's begin by turning back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. In John 6, I want to look at some language that we worked through earlier to really help us out. In John 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Nevertheless, the crowds are unwilling to commit wholeheartedly to Jesus. And why not? Well, the crowd demanded more signs. And Jesus accused the crowds of only coming because their bellies were full. And many turned and walked away. So John 6 was actually a major turning point in Jesus' ministry. It was a turning point that put him on the road to crisis, the crisis that we have found in John chapter 12. So why did the people walk away? Well, would you look at Jesus' perplexing answer? John 6, verse 37. All the Father gives me will Come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So when a person comes to Jesus Christ, the Father was behind that decision. I don't see how you can get around that. Jesus just said it. The Father gives people to Jesus. Now that implies that when people refuse to come... They have not been given to Jesus by the Father. And at the same time, the second clause includes one of those 32 whoever's. Jesus emphasizes whoever comes. I mean, it's right there in the text. So in a single breath, Jesus seems to assert divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God's sovereignty is a major theme in John's Gospel, but at the same time, John's emphasis on God's sovereignty does not override human responsibility in coming to Jesus. Here's what D.A. Carson says. John is not embarrassed by this theme of God's sovereignty because unlike many contemporary philosophers and theologians, he does not think that human responsibility is thereby mitigated. Carson writes, John is quite happy with the position that modern philosophy calls compatibilism. Well, that's a big term, but compatibilism was actually the viewpoint of the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards. Essentially means you have to embrace both sides of the mystery. Listen to the entire counsel of the Word of God first, all right? And then let your theories and ideas fall into place afterwards. Listen to everything God has written, and whatever he says is true. And if you can't get it all systematized in your mind into a tidy little logical sequence, that's okay. Don't worry. What God says is true. 
God's reality is, in fact, too large to fit inside the narrow circumference of your human mind. And very often in Scripture, there are statements that seem to pull us in different directions simultaneously. And they're just unabashedly brought together into a single complex thought. John 6 and verse 37. Now keep a finger here, and let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 records one of my favorite examples of this very thing happening. In Acts 2, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And whom does Peter claim was responsible for the death of Jesus? Who's to blame? Or why did Jesus die? Was his crucifixion a matter of divine sovereignty or human responsibility? Well, would you listen to how effortlessly Peter answers the question without trying to resolve further questions? Look at Acts 2 and verse 32. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Was Jesus delivered up to crucifixion because of the definite plan of a foreknowing God? Yes, it's right there. Was Jesus' crucifixion the wicked act of lawless men responsible for their crimes? Yes, it's right there. But I have more questions. Well, fine, ask your questions. I probably can't answer them. But I cannot deny a clear statement of Scripture, and our duty is to believe the Scripture even before we can exhaustively understand the Scripture. God did not create you with a mind large enough to resolve all the mysteries. Why would He design such a simple reality? Do you understand the mystery of the hypostatic union, divine and human natures in one person? Do you understand the precise intersection between the spirit and the human in the composition of Scripture? Do you understand the tension between the oneness and the plurality of God? There's lots of mysteries that we don't fully understand. That's what you would expect, given a God who's a whole lot bigger than us. G.K. Chesterton put it very well in his introduction to the book of Job. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. Now with that in place, let's turn right back to John chapter 6. And let's notice again how Jesus harmonizes divine sovereignty and human responsibility, beginning with verse 38. These are the words of Jesus. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, does the Father have a will? Yes. Has Jesus come to accomplish the Father's will? Yes. So, what is God's will? Well, keep reading and notice how Jesus answers the question with two answers, not one. Here's answer one. What's the will of God? Answer one, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's God's will. 
Answer 2, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So what is the Father's will? In verse 39, God determines that Jesus will not lose a single person whom God has given to Him. That's divine sovereignty. Our salvation is not guaranteed in human merit or decision. God has determined that Jesus will not lose a single soul who belongs to him. But notice what else is the will of the Father. Verse 40, God has willed that anyone who looks on the Son and believes will have eternal life. So, friend, if you want eternal life, well, look on the Son. That's your responsibility. You are obligated to believe on Jesus. Look at the Son. Now, of course, the passage begins with God's will. That is true. But what is my responsibility? Well, believe on Jesus. And nowhere in Scripture are we called to wallow in misery, wondering whether God gave us the Son. We are called to look. And believe. Do what God has told you to do. Just let Him take care of the rest. And if you're struggling with the question, Am I part of the elect? Has God predestined me to salvation? Well, what would Jesus say to you? Verse 40 This is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. He would say, stop wondering and look at the Son. So with all that in place, let's go back to John chapter 12 now and really re-engage our text. Of course, we're going to depart from chapter 12 very quickly. But, right? but if I were to guess, I would say that most of us are comfortable, relatively comfortable, with embracing some mystery at the intersection between divine sovereignty and human responsibility when it comes to our salvation. I don't think we have it all figured out, but I think we're probably okay with that. Does any of us really want to take credit for our salvation? We realize that there is some initiative here that God takes. We are perfectly comfortable, I suspect, in resting in God's initiative, even if we don't completely understand how that all works out with human responsibility. But I suspect that we still have trouble with some of the language particularly the language of verses 39 through 40. John says they could not believe. They could not believe. And Isaiah says in verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. It's one thing to embrace the truth that God doesn't lose any of his own that look to him for salvation. If I said, you look, I mean, God doesn't lose any of his own. You're like, okay. But I come back to you with verse 40, and you're saying, well, what's that all about? It feels different to acknowledge that God actively blinds people's eyes and hardens their hearts. Is God somehow culpable for people's disbelief? How do you explain all that? Well, thankfully, Scripture itself offers us an extended example that illustrates the hardening of the heart. And I'm referring to Pharaoh. So let's go to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. Several years ago, we took a summer break from our work through Romans and did a short series through Exodus. 
And we explore the relationship between God and Pharaoh. And I suspect it's been long enough that we should probably rediscover what we found. In Exodus 4 through 14, there are 15 references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And the four references that we have in chapter 9 represent what you'll find in those 15 references in chapter 4 to 14. So let's notice the four references in chapter 9, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 9, verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. 9.12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And verse 35, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, the 15 references to Pharaoh's hardened heart can be divided into three categories, all of which are found right here in chapter 9. First, Six of those statements are in the passive voice. They describe Pharaoh's heart as being hardened, but they do not state who hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's no subject. The passive voice was found in 9, 7, and 9, 35. Look at verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Passive voice. Well, was it God or Pharaoh who hardened his heart? Well, we can't say. We don't know. It doesn't say. Second, and three of those 15 statements were told that Pharaoh himself hardened his heart. Look at 9.34. We're told not only that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. And then thirdly, in six of those statements, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Look at 9.12. But the Lord Harden the heart of Pharaoh. Now, if every text was just in the passive voice, it would be a whole lot easier, right? We'll just say, well, we don't know. Our challenge is that we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart in sin, and also that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is it sinful to harden one's heart against God? That's easy, right? Is it sinful? Yes, Exodus 9.34. Pharaoh sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Does God sin? No. Romans 9 is clear. There is no injustice with God. So what does it mean for God to harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, listen to Douglas Moo. Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans. By the way, Douglas Moo is a, is a Calvinist, right? 
he recognizes the danger in making God the author of sin. He writes, we must recognize that God's hardening is an act directed against human beings who are already in rebellion against God's righteous rule. God's hardening does not, then, cause spiritual insensitivity to the things of God. It maintains people in that state of sin that already characterizes them. When you think about Romans 1, how does God express His wrath toward rebellious, defiant people who suppress the truth? Well, God's got His fingers of conviction down in their hearts. He's got a finger in their minds. He's got a finger in their soul. He's putting the pressure on. He applies that pressure of conviction to people to embrace their Creator. But men actively just suppress that truth. And God finally says, okay, enough. And He lets them go. He releases them to what the Bible calls a reprobate mind. That is the hardening of the heart. God does not initiate that human rebellion. But when God withdraws His convicting power from a man's heart, that heart turns to stone. And let me illustrate it this way. I used to collect rocks as a child. My collection has been despoiled by three children. And I had several rocks that were once trees. They are called petrified wood. Well, what happened? Well, when the water and the nutrients of life are withdrawn from organic life, it petrifies. It turns hard as a rock. My son has a trilobite fossil from the Cambrian strata, way down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It was once a living organism, full of soft, spongy tissue, It once recycled water through its flexible organs, and now it's a rock. A living organism that was once full of life turns into a dead, rock-hard fossil when life is withdrawn. And that's what happens in a man's heart who resists God. When God hardens a man's heart, God withdraws the conviction of a spirit, and that heart becomes stone. Now let me hasten to clarify I don't mean that a person was once alive spiritually or born again and then suddenly loses his salvation. That's not what we're talking about. But in Romans 1, there was a kind of living awareness and conviction that people have toward God. There was a spiritual sensitivity that they have toward a creator who made them. And they are sensitive enough to that creator that they have to work actively to suppress it. And they suppress it and they resist that conviction. And when they do, God withdraws, even while the man stubbornly refuses to recognize God. It's a simultaneous act. The man is walking away and God withdraws. Pharaoh hardened his heart in rebellion, And God hardened his heart in withdrawal. Let me give you a second illustration. From time to time, you'll watch the news, and you will see these images of mob violence about to erupt in a society. 
And very often you'll see a line of policemen there, or maybe soldiers there, and they have all, all their riot gear, and they're just, they're just holding this wall against a, a, this jostling, angry mob of people. What happens when the police withdraw their presence? Well, the dam breaks, and the mob surges. Well, the police are not guilty for the mob violence, But when the restraining force is removed, the hardened hearts are unleashed. When God withdraws the arresting grip of his conviction and just lets a person go, it's a judicial hardening. God says, okay, you don't want my conviction? You want to resist me? Well, have it your way. And he lets them go. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh or God? Yes. It's in the text. Now, let me point out one more thing about those 15 references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Nine of them, the nine that are not passive voice, refer obviously either to Pharaoh or to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But there's a little bit more to it than that. The first, the second, and the fourth references speak of Pharaoh hardening his heart. The third, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth speak of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So when you take that chronological approach, it suggests that Pharaoh took the initiative. We are twice told that Pharaoh hardened his heart before God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh initiates the rebellion because God does not force people to sin. Commentator Leon Morris writes, Neither here nor anywhere else has God said to harden anyone who has not first hardened himself. John Stott says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and refused to humble himself is made plain in the story. So God's hardening of him was a judicial act, abandoning him to his own stubbornness. So Pharaoh takes the initiative in hardening his heart against God, and God comes along and just confirms Pharaoh in that state of rebellion that Pharaoh initiated. All right? So with all that in place, let's go back to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And I know this is heavy, but what can I do? I mean, this is the text. When you read the text, you will notice a couple parallels with the account of Pharaoh. First in verse 37, just like Pharaoh took the initiative in hardening his heart against God, the Jews take the initiative in rejecting Jesus. They're singled out first. Our passage begins with the Jews' failure to believe. Verse 37. And second, do you remember all those signs that Pharaoh saw? All those devastating plagues? Well, in verse 37, God also gave the Jews many signs, although signs of a very different kind. Jesus did not unleash on Israel signs of destruction like plagues of frogs or locusts, hail and death of the firstborn, nothing like that. In fact, Jesus unleashes on Israel signs of healing, feeding the thousands, opening blind eyes and resurrecting the dead. He's doing signs again, but very different signs, very positive signs. Nevertheless, the people still rejected him. 
Now, friends, if Jesus' contemporaries were so belligerent in the rejection of Jesus, why would God do otherwise than what he did with Pharaoh? God will withdraw his presence like moisture from a tree and turn their hearts to stone. And that explains the citation of Isaiah in verse 40. He has blinded their eyes. And harden their heart. It's just like Pharaoh all over again. Even though their signs are much more positive. God is going to withdraw from them. Well, does that give you enough to understand the hardening of hearts? Was Israel responsible? Yes. Did God harden their hearts? Yes. Now, let me ask a further question. It won't take as much time with this one. How did God blind the eyes of the Jews? Verse 37 says, Jesus did many signs before them, yet they did not believe. So then how did God blind their eyes to the truth? That sounds really, really harsh. God's just blinding them so they can't see. Well, Actually, if you want a really, really clear answer to that question, let me suggest that you go back and reread John chapter 9. The whole chapter actually illustrates the blinding of the Jews' eyes. Jesus in John 9 performed a dramatic miracle when he opened the eyes of a man who had been born blind. But the bulk of the chapter, however, really wasn't about the miracle. It was about the intersection of two stories as people try to process what happened with that miracle. Remember chapter 9? In one story, you have the formerly blind man, and he progressively understands who Jesus is. At first, he doesn't really even know who this guy is, this guy named Jesus, but there are lots of Jesuses. He didn't know whether Jesus was a sinner or not. Then he figured out he must have been a prophet. But as he keeps thinking about this, he's like, this man has to be from God. But the Jews, on the other hand, stubbornly refuse to admit that a miracle has occurred, even though they have seen many, many, many miracles. And as the chapter moves along, they stage his interrogations But these are not fair trials at all. They have already agreed beforehand that whoever confesses Jesus is going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And the chapter is just full of irony. Because the blind man learns to see, and those who can see become willfully blind. The whole chapter illustrates how Jesus' sign... His miracle, in the words of verse 40, actually blinded their eyes. God blinded their eyes through gracious, miraculous signs that they were unwilling to see. The Jews were guilty. So indeed, it does seem very harsh to say that God blinds people's eyes to the truth. But actually, he just kept doing more and more miracles. In fact, the opening of blind eyes was his most common miracle. And he just kept doing miracles until the Jews finally said, Okay, enough. We don't want to see anymore. Let's kill him. It was actually the miracle of opening blind eyes that blinded them to the truth because they refused to see it.
Now, I understand that today's sermon is a little theologically challenging, right? Sometimes you have to really slow down, though, and work through a difficult passage. And there are theological conundrums that will turn up in the text. And the problem with you all is you're a very smart congregation. And if I avoid these things, believe me, I will hear about them. Somebody out there will say, well, why didn't you comment on that? Why didn't you explain that? All right? So that's just how it goes when you pastor in a university town, I guess. All right? And I've, just, I've done the best I can with some theologically challenging material here. But I don't want anyone to leave here today just really feeling upset or depressed or uncertain. So I want to speak again to anybody who might be asking this question. Am I elect? Has God chosen me? Am I like Pharaoh, hardening my heart? Am I blinded to the truth? Well, friend, what would Jesus say to you? What would Jesus say to you? Here's what Jesus would say to you. Whoever. Whoever. He'll say it to you 32 times in John's Gospel. So, friend, if that's you, here is Jesus' counsel to you in the final sermon of his public ministry in John's Gospel. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Verse 45. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Verse 46, I have come to the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Are you actively suppressing the miracles that Jesus performed? Are you saying, no, I want to embrace him? Whoever you are then, whoever wishes to come into the light, embrace Jesus, well, come. That's what Jesus said. My friend, I don't pretend to understand for a moment all the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how all that works out. And I, very, I had a very delightful conversation last week with one of our members. And this very subject came up, and we were talking on the phone, and he says, you know, I don't understand how all this works out. Yeah, nobody does. We are incapable of understanding all mysteries. But this we can't understand. Jesus said, whoever... You can understand that, can you not? Whoever you are, go ahead, whoever you are, and just come to Jesus. Oh, but wait just a minute. Maybe there's another angle that I'm neglecting. What would John Calvin say? Anytime we discuss these matters, someone will bring up the 16th century former John Calvin. The problem with Calvin is that no one reads him. Mark Twain said, a classic is a book that everyone quotes and nobody reads. (laughs) Actually, Brother Walt Sampson, when we went to his funeral recently, he he read through the entire Institutes as an older gentleman. That's that's a great idea. Well, let's, let's read Calvin. Here's what Calvin says on John 3 and verse 16. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish, that's what the text says, Calvin writes, he has employed the universal term, whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. 
Calvin continues, he invites all men without exception to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than eternal life. Now look at verse 46. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And let me read to you right from Calvin's commentary. Here's what Calvin says. The term whoever appears to have been added on purpose Partly that all believers without exception may enjoy this benefit in common and partly to show that the reason why unbelievers perish in darkness is that of their own accord, they forsake the light. Now thank you, John Calvin. But more importantly, what is Jesus' answer to you? We can read Calvin all day long, but friends, you can read the text. You don't need John Calvin to read the text to you. What is Jesus' answer to you? Verse 44, whoever believes in me. Verse 45, whoever sees me. Verse 46, whoever believes in me. So friend, whoever you are, come to Jesus. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for these delightful words, these challenging words, these sobering words, and these true words. And Lord, we confess that there are things in your scripture that are hard to understand. Peter the Apostle himself said that Paul wrote things that are difficult to understand. So we understand, Lord, that we will never exhaustively understand your mind. We don't pretend to. Lord, I pray that none of us would retreat into mystery or uncertainty and forsake our obligation to believe. Because this much is clear, that we are obligated to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray for anyone here today who has not yet placed his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that as we have reached the end of Christ's public teaching ministry in John's gospel, Lord, that they would just resolve, whoever they are, they come to Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we celebrate the table, as Paul says, we preach or we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ until he comes. And so I pray that today's partaking will be a proclamation to anyone here today who has yet to come into the light. May this communion table, Lord, draw us closer to Christ. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.